What would I say to somebody who was thinking of doing life uni? I would say come prepared to learn a lot in unconventional ways and meet people that will journey with you at the same pace. If you're a fan of the Tent Talks podcast, then you or someone you know might be interested in Life Uni. Life Uni is a course that I have become involved in over the last year or so, and it is one of the most exciting things I've done for a long time. You will learn things that you didn't think you needed to learn and stuff that will tie into your everyday life. The Life Uni course takes young people between the ages of 18 to 25 and offers them a whole life discipleship program. We combine following the way of Jesus with life skills such as money management, conflict resolution, working off the land, nutrition, health and other great topics. We eat together, we play together, and we even work together because the course includes options for internships, job shadowing, and volunteer opportunities for businesses and charities in the area. The course happens in the south of England, near Brighton. It begins at the end of September and runs for eight weeks, and registration is open now. Just go to lifeuni.co.uk for any more information you need. I've been telling my mum, I've been teaching my mum about a lot of the stuff that we've learned and she wishes that she had learned that when she was younger. Life Uni also offers open courses for anyone of any age or stage. These day-long seminars look at similar life skill subjects combined with following the way of Jesus. I would say if you want to invest into your future self, come to Life Uni. Come with an open heart and an open mind. Go to lifeuni.co.uk for more information. Welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Hello. And welcome fellow travellers to Tent Talks. My name is Natasha Beckles and today I am your host. I'm so delighted that we have got a beautiful array of beautiful women who are here to share and talk. One of them you know already, it's Natalia Nana, who's a specialist in equity, diversity, inclusion and liberation and who's journeying herself and has been journeying with me for over the last two years in thinking about how we decolonize, de- take the violence out of our faith and ourselves. But we are very excited today because we have a very, very special guest. We are so delighted to be joined in the tent today by Dr. Christina Cleveland. So if you don't know, Dr. Christina Cleveland, PhD, is a social psychologist, public theologian, author and activist. She is the founder and the director of the Center of Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journey towards liberation. She is an award-winning researcher, a former professor at Duke University's Divinity School, and she lives now in Boston, Massachusetts. I can't even say it. Can you say it for me, Christina? Because my English is Spanish. Massachusetts. Mass- 
<laughs> People just say mass. <laughs> well, as a priest, I say mass. That means slightly different things to me. <laughs> but we are going to share and and share and welcome a mass where we can talk about this particular. We want to talk about divinity. We want to talk about femininity. We want to talk about your book. Do you want to kick us off? Tell us about your book. Christina? Sure, sure. I recently published a book called God is a Black Woman. And the the journey, the adventure that brought me to writing the book was actually uh, my personal liberation story, or at least a piece of it. I don't think there are libraries that can hold my whole story. But in this particular book, I talk about coming to terms with the white male God of our society this ghost that's also very present and active in our lives and how it had affected my my being and my identity as a, as a as a black woman who was alienated and hated by this god so christina tell us tell us about this god where did you meet this god how old were you when you first came across how did you know when did you get to know who he was yeah yeah you know i think my earliest conscious touch, I imagine there were earlier touches, but the earliest conscious touch was when I was five years old and I was in vacation Bible school, which um, in the, do you guys have vacation Bible school in the UK? Is that a thing? Kind of. In the yeah. US, it's, it's, in the US, it's quite a phenomenon and you'll see signs throughout your town every summer with churches, mostly white evangelical churches that host this sort of like camp. It's almost like a summer camp. Um, but it's a Bible-based summer camp. And my mom had us going to them because um, they're like free or cheap. They're like $20 for the whole week or something. So, I mean, my mom was resourceful. Like, it's a great way to have some childcare at an affordable rate. The problem was that they're pretty much run by white evangelical churches. And so I remember um, first just noticing, how come I don't see myself in any of the, you know, none of the storyboards look like me and none of the teachers look like me and none of the students look like me. And at that point, you know, I had spent most of my time at home or in black church spaces. So I noticed this is a lot of white people, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) And one time my teacher called me and my brother nigger, just out of the blue. And um, I just remember thinking, I don't really know this word, but I know it's bad. Mm. And I know it means something about the fact that my skin is different than the rest of these kids. Um, And so that was my first time of realizing, gosh, in this church space where this white male God reigns, I am unsafe and I am unwanted. And that says something about my blackness. That's a deep lesson that uh, many of us here will have had to explore. You know, we're we're recording this here in the UK and that experience of knowing that you're different starts pretty early for lots of us. For for some, you know, maybe you don't notice it until you leave your family home and turn up in a church or some other organisation. For others, you know, when you get to nursery, it hits you at that particular point that those differences are there. Natalia Nana, you've had different experiences because your heritage is mixed as they describe it mixed heritage whatever um, languages that or descriptions that they have for the diversity and beauty that's in what it means to be god what do you have anything to add to that yeah it's so interesting because for me being mixed has been so profound it's like putting the primary identifier of my life in terms of my trying to journey as to where do i belong who am i when I'm in Ghana, I'm O'Bronny, as in a white person. When I'm in England, 
annoyingly, funny fact, most often when race card was, was called, I'd be called the P word. I'd be called P-A-K-I, a, a packy. Yeah. And mm. I remember being so vexed. I was like, at least get it right. Yeah. <laughs> like, at least get it right. And mm. there was something there that was partly because I was so racially aware from being a child because I didn't look like my mother or my father in every space in which I existed there was nobody apart from my brother who looks like me. So it's always been this primary lens, but I think also the reason that that insult insulted me so deeply was because it was another way of saying, like, I don't see you, no one sees your race, what are you? Who are you? separating you from your people in that kind of way. Yeah, I'm hearing you, Christina, Mm. I'm hearing you, Christina, though, because the violence of that experience, particularly it's not just in school, it's in church. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I got similar messages in school, which is interesting because I, I, I often attended secular schools and public schools. But I mean, my my exploration of white male God has taught me that though white male God might begin in the church, he really infects all of society. I mean, even yeah. here in the United States, we're in this like debate over whether a black woman can be appointed to the Supreme Court. And that to me says everything about who we see as moral leaders in our country, who we see as sacred, who we see as having something to offer in terms of moral leadership. And because we have this this picture of a white male God, it's very easy to make a connection. Well, then, of course, white men can be on the Supreme Court. A support, of course, you know, but then it's like, well, black women, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, wh- why is President Biden trying to appoint a black woman? Why is that causing so much so turmoil? So much drama. Exactly. Right? I cannot tell and you how much something drama. something about who's secret and who's profane, who's moral and who's not. I cannot tell you how much drama that would cause if we were having a conversation in the UK about having a black woman as the prime minister. The place would be run better, I promise you. But say a little bit more about what it means. How has blackness, black femaleness become not sacred? How is it not, how is it profane? In what ways have you come across that? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because, um, you know, if if your God, if your cultural God, so this is a God that exists outside of the church, if your cultural, is, is in addition to inside the church, if your cultural God is white and male, then anything that approximates whiteness and maleness is going to be seen as sacred, as moral, as holy, and anything that's not is going to be seen as dirty, mm-hmm. deceptive, unholy, and blackness and femaleness are at the opposite of this white male God. And so, you know, in the United States, black women who deal with both racism, sexism, and classism, if we dare to say, hey, we need help, we get called welfare queens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, you're just ostracized and labeled a blight on society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, one of my most telling experiences of being, of, of like kind of understanding the way that Black women in particular are seen as bad was actually on your land at Cambridge University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I listened to that talk. too. You listened to that talk? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. And, you know, and it was so interesting because it, it wasn't a perfect talk. And so I was, I was happy to receive critique. I'm an of academic. Course. This is what I do, right? But the first person who said anything to me in response to my talk in which I, I critiqued this Cambridge scholars racism. He's now deceased, yeah, but yeah. you know, he was racist and colonial and all the things. Um, and this person just said, I can't tell if you're sloppy or mischievous. 
That was yeah. the only thing they said to me. It was, and I just was like, "That's not even a question." First it's of all, it's got nothing to do with the actual content that, that you have exactly. raised. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so it was just interesting to see. Gosh, sloppy is a term that has been applied, branded on black people. You're lazy. You're dirty. You're worthless. And mischievous is a term that's been branded on women. Mm-hmm. You're uh, you're deceptive. We can't trust you. And so it was like, it's like he practically said to me, I can't tell if you're black or female right now, yeah, yeah. you know? And it's like, wow. You're operating I'm... from those, my, my understanding of what those concepts mean, you are operating from those. And exactly. that's how I'm going to decide and fit you in a box in that sense. Exactly. And that's how I'm going to just completely ignore all your entire research-based lecture at this research-based school, you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, this, yeah. Just, this wasn't even just on the street, you know, yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. in this academic context. And so I was just like, wow. And it just, it was shocking to me how, I think in the book I use the term locked and loaded. Like it was mm-hmm. just off the tip of this guy's tongue. It's like, gosh, is this how you see women and black people? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing that comes to mind is I can't tell if you're sloppy or mischievous. I'm uncomfortable. So I'm, I, so now I'm just going to allow that mm-hmm. overflow of that discomfort to just come out and be used in this language to attack you. And I'm going to take you down, not on the basis of the arguments that you put together, but on who you are as a person. And then that is not or a personal body. attack. Yeah, yeah. Or body is what I, yeah. And so it's just like, gosh, it just says so much about how black women are perceived as holy, unholy. They're like, we're the opposite of white male God. And People really struggle to see us as worthy, Mm -hmm. moral leaders, as sacred, as our stories having automatic legitimacy. You know, we don't have to prove all the, it's like, there's so many times when I was in academia where I had to like lead with my credentials. <laughs> this, right? this is what it is. It's, it's uh, people getting qualifications to prove their humanity. Exactly. And then the overwork, I think, is mm-hmm. an aspect of it that you are working to prove against that I'm not lazy, that I'm not mm-hmm. incompetent, that um, mm-hmm. I'm worthy of the space that I take up. And, you know, just that it it really struck me reading that, thinking about how, you know what, some of these health issues that are going on in the community amongst women that overwork and that desire to have to prove that you Mm -hmm. and and do you know what it reminds me of? Patty, you know, from 12 Years a Slave and she's doing bench pressing like Mm -hmm. 400 kilos Mm -hmm. of cotton, you know, a day and at night Mm -hmm. she gets abused you know and 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 this whole it plays out again and again and it's like people like oh no slavery doesn't happen anymore and that's not what we've got Mm -hmm. but in a kind of psychological way and space we've still got it and I've I've really found it helpful to have your book talk about that what that's like Mm -hmm. what was it that awoke you because you were five then and you know you were an Mm -hmm. academic scholar you've been invited Mm -hmm. over to um, Cambridge to stand and talk about these issues and somebody stood up and said that was that the point at which you were like hang on who is this white male god what t- take us from the journey no of- that was way after the fact I had already awakened to white male god thankfully it's, that's part of the reason why I was able to so quickly be like wait a second like mm-hmm. there's something off about you there's nothing off about me but I think so I think my first my first powerful awakening 
to the problem of white male God was 10 years ago when Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman. Because up until that point, and I mean, it's sad to say, but I was like 31 at that time. I had spent my whole life in these sort of Christian communities and and then also in just the broader academic context, which to me felt like the Christian communities in the sense that it was so white and so male. And Mm -hmm. here I'm out there getting these credentials that I don't even necessarily want. They don't, they're white, they're white patriarchal values, yeah. you know, like, and so I, I was in those spaces just contorting myself and surrounded by both people in academia and also people in the Christian church who claim to care about me, claim yeah. to be my colleague or my family. And then to see the response that they had to the whole national conversation that erupted around Trayvon Martin, I was just like, that was a huge wake up for me. And my first yeah. firing, my first mass firing of white friends. <laughs> um, Explain a mass firing of white friends for those people that you're don't just like, well, I'm not talking to you anymore. Like I literally, like you can't, you cannot hold the space to listen. When I mass fired my friends and I went through probably three or four rounds of mass firing in, in my thirties, it was basically me just saying, Hey, these are people sometimes of all races, not just white people, sometimes also black and brown people, where I was just like, I'm on a journey, and you cannot hold space for me to be on this journey, and so I, I need to just let go of this relationship, and sometimes it was like actual conversation, Mm -hmm. sometimes it was just a ghost, like I'm just, (laughs) we're no longer, you're no longer in my life, I'm not, I'm not responding to phone calls, just depending on how violent the relationship was, and whether having a conversation was going to open me up to more violence or not, but that was probably my first, like, just moment of, wait a second, these people are talking love, they're talking, you know, in church, we're talking love, in academia, we're talking inclusivity, Um, however, there's a disconnect here. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I first became really started to look at the white Christ. Like, yeah. who is this white God? I wasn't looking at gender yet because, you know, honestly, as a black woman, I've had to choose. Do I want to care about race or do I want to care about my gender in this moment? Because right I then. can't show up as both. Yeah, yeah. And I was in all of these sort of like racial justice movements in the church and in academia that were frankly misogynistic. They were not open to women. And then I was also trying to lean into this sort of feminist movement, but that was just as alienating to my blackness. And so I kind of just chose and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on race, which is now I realize is a split to my intersectionality and my sacred black feminine identity. Um, But it wasn't until the run up to when Trump got elected in 2016 that I really started to look at not just the problem of white Christ, but the problem of male Christ. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. in the United States, of course, people are racist. I knew that. And so when Trump was saying racist and xenophobic things, I was like, people are going to just explain this away and keep supporting him. Yeah, but know. then he started saying things about assaulting white women. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> hold up. Like, they're precious white women. Are even precious getting shot down here. White women are getting shot down. I kind of joke white, like white femininity is like one of the fruits of the spirit, you know, like, like people just love white femininity, you know, it's so important. It's so protected over and against black women, right? It's so weaponized. Mm -hmm. And when he started talking about white women and assaulting them and the people still supported him, I was like, okay, I don't just hate white Christ. I hate male Christ. I hate the fact that all black people and all women are seen as unholy 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 Mm -hmm. unholy and 
it's just, you know, that whole situation with Trump. I mean, I can remember when that election went down. I think I've got something on Facebook that was like, Jesus, hold us. It's a a picture of a white Jesus in the middle of the storm. I'm still holding on to a Jesus that's going to deal with this. When we've clearly got someone voted in, not only by white evangelicals, but white female evangelicals um, who are willing to cut apart, sever from themselves aspects of who they are. And people are talking about tattoos or cutting off parts of your body and not seeing that they do that in a kind of psychological sense to themselves just to hold on to the power of having this person who represents that and we're here in the UK and at the same time we were having all sorts of conversations about particular leadership that was going on at the time there were shenanigans Nana (laughs) Natalia Nana you may remember um you know the current MP you know, various, uh, the prime minister, various other people who were, you know, in deep shenanigans to try and get themselves into power. We were in the middle of a Brexit situation that, you know, just brought out, I mean, I basically went and got my citizenship for Barbados, where my parents are from, on account of that, because as a history student, you're waiting for that time when we have one of those crystal night situations, and people think that you're exaggerating, but the amount of violence that was coming out just into the the ether, into the on radio that you could get away with, you know, we had the Meghan situation and Prince Harry and all of that stuff. It was just bringing it all to the surface. But you over in the States, you're looking at that situation. Trump is here. You know, in your book, you talk about a woman who's just like the hopelessness. And we'd lost this kind of, you know, Obama had brought so much hope that everybody was kind of depending on. And then we've had this complete opposite situation come about. You know, they've been saying that we were post-race. <laughs> we were a post-race society, but now we're in the depths of race like we've never, ever been before. I, I have no idea what that looked like and sounds like to you as a, you know, you're, you're a social scientist. It must have been traumatic. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why I was so desperate to encounter myself in the divine was because I was holding all of that trauma. Mm. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I didn't know how to even move forward in my life. I just knew this white male God cannot work, does not work for me. I've tried to make it work. And as a strong black woman, I can make just about anything work. Yeah. And I am tired of trying to make this work. It does not work. And it was just a complete breakdown. And um, I remember, you know, when, when, when I was talking with my editorial team at Harper who published my book um, about the back cover and how they were going to, you know, they kept saying, well, her crisis of faith. And I just remember thinking, do we want to call it a crisis? Like, you know, like, um, and it's funny because like, I, a part, a part of the reason why I didn't like the word crisis of faith is because I, I think there's a part of me that still wants to feel like I've always arrived. Like I, everything's I've, I've always had this, like, very beautiful and complex theology and you're just lucky that I'm sharing it with you all now but the fact of the matter is it's like I had a breakdown whether we call it a crisis of faith or not I got to a point where I was just like this does not work nothing is working and actually everything's broken and I have not yet identified the way forward you know it's like this was like a very it was a very significant and extremely traumatic I mean to realize that your entire world has been lying to you your whole life 
Truman Show. And the shame. Yeah, the Truman Show, exactly, you know, and also, like, um, the shame that I carried. I carried so much shame, like, why am I in my 30s? Yeah. How did I let this go on so long? Yeah. Which I then is really just classic white patriarchy. Blame the victim, right? Yeah, you yeah, were yeah. born you were born in a prison, but you're you're ashamed that you have to get yourself out. Um but that's what I carried because I was just like I believed this. I was like the good reconciliation person, you know, reconciliation in square in scare quotes. Yeah, I used yeah. to believe bridge you know, bridges are reconcilers are bridges and bridges get stepped on. So that was how I sort of justified the abuse yeah, yeah, that yeah. I owed myself to. I, so like I, had, I had a little cross theology to support the abuse that I exposed myself to. Well, yeah. that's what Jesus did. Jesus got stepped on. Jesus was the bridge, you know, all that stuff without really much of a sociological imagination and being like, yeah, I ain't Jesus. Yeah. Like, <laughs> The moment we get more Christians just admitting you are not Jesus, we're getting closer. Oh my gosh, yeah. we would be, we would and love that. And I'm too that. sacred for this. Yeah, and yeah, I'm too yeah. sacred for this. But yeah, it was extremely traumatic. I did, it's part, you know, I don't really talk much about this in the book. I mention it, but I don't yeah. talk much about it. I spent two and a half, three years in intensive trauma therapy where I was doing multiple sessions a week in, in supplementing that with mul- with multiple sessions of yoga for trauma yeah, and yeah, yeah. journaling and mindfulness meditation and all the, so, I mean, yes, I went on a pilgrimage to go see 18 black Madonnas and that was awesome. And also I had a team of about 10 healers, therapists, teachers who, we're just know, holding it I give together. gratitude to at the end of the book. Yeah. You know, as during my breakdown, during my crisis, whatever you want to call it, there was something, there was a significant moment in which I realized what I've been doing is not working. It's not working. Do you know, it's really helpful that you are sharing this because uh, whether this is a mental health journey or just, I call it the plastic on your brain, the transforming of your mind, because mm-hmm. you have been formed in a particular way by the world that has told you so many messages about who it is and what it is that you are. And that moment when God break allows for that to be broken, that mold to be broken is absolutely terrifying. And I think you know, I want to move us on to obviously what has happened around the death of George Floyd, that amplified again. I have to say at a similar time, I was having serious dramas going on myself. So that whole decade, there was a lot going on because it was bringing up so much around race, so much about what it was to be a woman. So I think that your, your book speaks to so many people who have been traumatized for a long time, even before the pandemic arrived, even before we saw the image of mm-hmm. God having the, the Ruach in it strangled out yeah. of that man's body mm-hmm. and, and the dehumanization that was so prophetically an image of what has been going on for hundreds of years mm-hmm. in this dynamic and this conversation between um, these two groups of people who've met and the violence that has gone on between it and what that has taught the entire world about what is acceptable to do to a black body and to a female body. Could you uh, say to us a little bit more, you know, bring us up to by the time you got to George Floyd's situation, this was not news for you. You know? No, 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 no. Yeah. By the time I got to George Floyd, I had I'd already started writing the book and I actually wrote the vast majority of the book the summer that yeah. George Floyd was. So summer 2020 pandemic, George Floyd, 
Breonna Taylor, all of them. And so, you know, I had already been on my pilgrimage. And at this point, I had the theology, I had, you know, I had this sort of spirituality that I had, that I had encountered. Um, and it was just a matter of sitting down and writing it. Um, and I just remember when George Floyd happened, the heartbreak that I experienced at his murder, his lynching, yes. but then also, um, I just remember thinking, you know, cause of course, when you're a black person and that you also have some leadership in justice movements, you get asked to, to show up at all these events and maybe yeah. even lead some events and curate spaces and all the things. And I, I said, I, I need to write this book. That's my response to this. I yeah, need, yeah. this is what I, cause I, I can't show up at all these events and also write the book. And so I only did one of it and that's because um, some black trans women in my area were or, organizing it. And they invited me and I'm not going to say no to a black trans woman. I just I know, know that's not what I'm going to do. So I, I went to that one of it, spoke at that, but the rest of the time I just said no. And I, just, and I wrote yeah. because I said, we need a, the, we need a different theology. We need a different spirituality. We need a different spiritual imagination. And that's my contribution to this yes. to conversation. This yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's so many people who are making important contributions in other ways, but I have a gift of just an incredible spiritual imagination. And so let me offer that as my gift to this. Wow. It took a lot of discipline because, and I'll tell you, I think that's a good segue into this spiritual imagination because before I understood and believed and practiced that God is a black woman, I thought I had to show up at everything. Mm-hmm. because I knew I couldn't trust white male God. So I was technically someone who had faith, right? I would say, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe that God can, you know, God will show up or God will do what we need God to do. But really I was agnostic mm-hmm. and no shade to agnostics. I respect agnosticism, but I was calling myself a believer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was practicing agnosticism because I would be like, well, I, I really don't think this God has my back. So wow. I'm going to make sure. So if they're inviting me to this, I have to go because if I don't go, who will? If I don't lead it, who will? If I don't save the people, who will? And it's just like this incredibly fearful, self-centered, lonely, hopeless way of being in the world that black women are often pushed into. Well, you've just described a kind of savior mentality, but comes from a completely different perspective you know often you're talking or listening to theologians talk about you know savior you know savior mm-hmm. theology or mentalities or pastoral approaches and actually I'm, you've just shown me that how we end up in those situations from a completely different narrative and you need to hear those voices of different theologians and different experiences to even unpack that so that's so helpful yeah it was just like I if I don't go who will who will and and now I have a belief in a God who's a black woman. And so I'm like, oh, God's a black woman. Oh, it's handled. Yeah, it's yeah, handled. Yeah. I can actually choose which events I actually feel called into and which ones where I need to say, actually, you know, I need to write. This is my calling. My calling is to write. And I can trust that it's handled because God's a black woman. And for the first time in my life, I can actually trust that. I can I actually trust that she's got my back. Well, I'm just laughing here because there's somewhere else that you're like cleaning up white messes. So in a kind of way, when you have a white male God, you're constantly as a black person. Cleaning up white messes. Cleaning up white messes is in the kind of theodicy of the, the, the entire world. No wonder mm-hmm. we're exhausted. All the time. All the time. And then once I, once I got connected to the state for 
this idea that God is a black woman um, who stands with us and knows us and centers our perspective and what she's doing in the world. It's like, oh, well, if there's one thing I know about black women, I can rely on black women. (laughs) It's, it's going to be fine. I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know what the pathway will be. I don't know who she'll use, but I can trust that if I just do my part, the other parts will be taken care of. And so, you know, I, it was so powerful for me to, to end this crisis of George Floyd, mm-hmm. where at least in the United States, white people were freaking out. They're calling, you know, they're calling it a racial reckoning. I don't even call it that because I just know that white people care for about five minutes. And it's so true. Like, you know, my Patreon numbers ballooned and then they just went back to normal people. You know what I mean? Like if you see, you see these things where it's all these white people pretend to care for a minute and then something else comes along and they decide. So I wasn't even, I was like, white, white, aesthetic whiteness is not going to motivate me anymore. I hear that. I hear that. And just because the white people are calling and even offering money to get involved, that's not what's going to motivate me. What's going to motivate me is what is the sacred black feminine inviting me into? And for the first time, I had an image of God that I felt connected to and could trust and felt invited into. Wow, wow, wow. Talk to us about the sacred black feminine then. What, what, what is it? And Natalia and I'm going to bring you in because I know you're going to have some questions here. Yeah, thank you. I, I I love just hearing you talk there and, and the themes of trust. You know, trust is an emancipation from fear coming up, but that sense of when you said, I can just trust that if I do my bit, God will do hers. That sense of God as a relationship, which is such a counterbalance to white male God, which is, you know, very much God as a director. He's written a script for your life and you failed, you've sinned. If you haven't found that, you know, if you've deviated from the path, you've disappointed white my God and, and you're a failure and you need to repent, turn back and, you know, Google will reroute you because God is so gracious. But actually your model of it being like, no, God and I are on a journey together. Like we chat, she's mm-hmm. in me, we have relationship. Mm-hmm. I'm not, a, mm-hmm. like, you know, in the same Christianity that says God didn't want puppets, that's why you have free will, that's why there's sin. It's the same Christianity that's telling you, you need to follow God's path and you're sinning. So I just, I can hear that sort of that, that contradiction mm-hmm. that would lead to that breaking and that breaking not being a bad thing, that breaking being a cracking open, being a releasing. But I think with that, linking that then to the redemption and the liberation and the beauty of the relationship and trust that is yeah. predicated on on beautiful black divinity. I guess a question I have as someone who is of bicultural, bi-ethnicity, who is deconstructed as a Christian, decolonizing as a Christian, loves Yeshua, dislikes Christ, loves Papa Mama God, dislikes white male God. And is very much in all areas, in and of, in and of, wondering then, okay, it's the sacred divine feminine. I'm with her, I call her mama, I know her, I love her, just as I used to call daddy, father, father, daddy. And I, I, was, I was cool, I was legit with, with white male God too, because thankfully my experience wasn't the same as yours. I wasn't raised Christian, thank you, Jesus. I was able to come in as an adult and actually question mm-hmm. things. And I don't, I say that jokingly. Mm-hmm. And I also say mm-hmm. it with real mindful awareness with having atheist and lapsed parents and multicultural circle. It protected me that when I then came to meet the image of Christ I was presented with, I had different lenses through which to say, okay, this part is Yeshua and God, that part, no. And that mm-hmm. protected me, thankfully. But then my question is, as someone who's in and into intercultural relationships, interfaith relationships, is the sacred black 
divine, sacred divine feminine, is she for everyone or is she only for black women? <laughs> she is, how do I, I'm trying to remember exactly how <laughs> I phrased it in the book because I, I was, I was very intentional about how, um, she is for everyone, but she's especially for black women. Okay. I think I phrased it some, something like that. So here's the thing, like I, I found this, I encountered the sacred black feminine first through the black Madonnas. Um, and that kind of made sense to my like very Christian brain. Um, but the black Madonnas are actually just portals to the deeper sacred black feminine, which is interfaith intercultural, interracial. The sacred black feminine is represented in Kali, the Hindu goddess. The sacred black feminine is represented in Isis, the ancient Egyptian goddess. The sacred black feminine is represented in Oshun, the Yoruba goddess. The sacred black feminine is represented in Guadalupe, the indigenous Mexican goddess, right? And so anywhere where God shows up as black and female and for the black and female which would also mean the most marginalized of that society. Um, that's the sacred black feminine. I want to introduce my white husband who is on his own journey of deconstructing and decolonizing his faith and his evangelicalism and, you know, purging himself of, of the, the violence that's been done to him. Is the white, is the, is the sacred black feminine for him? Is the sacred black divine for everyone? Because part of me thinks, yes, it is. And I also notice in myself, part of me feels protective mm -hmm. of her. And to link that in, I'm also challenging myself of, oh, are you coming from a scarcity fear mindset? Because she is a God of abundance, but also it, it provokes in me images of black mammies. Mm -hmm. It provokes in me an image of whiteness mm -hmm. violates blackness. Mm -hmm. So part of me is like, oh, great. Um, Christina is is opening up and introducing and introducing me to pathways for me to connect with my own sacred black feminine, my own sacred black divine, both within and without me and within and without others. I want to share that to enrich my, um, you know, melanin deficiency, my not my white um, family and friends of faith. And I'm scared that their whiteness is going to be violence to it. I'm scared it's going to be extractive. So yeah, in, in your understanding of who's done this research and this journeying, is the sacred black feminine for everyone? Yeah, the sacred black feminine is for everyone and she's especially for black women. And one of the points okay. that I make is that though everyone is welcome, not everyone is ready. And that it's mm. different, there two, there's a distinction between knowing things about the sacred black feminine and practicing the sacred black feminine. And to practice the sacred black feminine is to center black women, particularly the most marginalized. So I tell stories about my sister who lives with pretty extreme mental um, health cycles and also black trans women, queer black women. And so I'm like, if, if, if my spirituality, my work, my focus, my reparations are not centering the most marginalized of black women, I'm not practicing the sacred black feminine. And if I'm just caught up in reading books about her and talking about her and knowing things about her, I'm not practicing the sacred black feminine. To practice the sacred black feminine is to be transformed by her and to get into formation around her unapologetic love for black women. 
And so, yeah, sure. Everyone's invited. Are, are you ready? Maybe not. And I have, you know, I have several chapters that kind of address the problem of appropriation. I have several, and I have some, um, and I talk, and I kind of take issue with the black mammy of the shack, that global best-selling book. Yeah. And I basically call her white male God in blackface. Yeah, yeah. She's 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 serving white purposes. She's serving white men. She's serving white comfort. And so that's not the sacred black feminine, even though it's a black woman acting like God. And the sacred black feminine is a hundred percent disruptive to anything that white people and white men want and and feel. She is a hundred percent like she's inconvenient. She's inconvenient and there's a fire and there's a power to her. And I love our lady of the side eye. Who's one of the black Madonnas that I visited who literally, I mean, she's so petty. She's so petty, right? I mean, (laughs) she's not petulant like white male God. She's not, she's, she doesn't have high, but unstable self-esteem. She knows who she is. And you, you know, doing a thing or two to her is not going to knock her off. She's called her official name is our lady of the rock. Okay. She's solid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she's petty in that she, her statue, her, her almost, her statue's from the 1100s. So it's about a thousand years old. In her statue, there's a white male priest kneeling to her and she's just giving him side eye. 100%. That's how petty she is. She's like, I'm so petty. I will put a white man in my statue just to show the world that I am not here for him. I am here for black women. And so, yeah, if that's, if that priest, that white man wants to get into formation for his own liberation. Great. Mm. But she's here for black women. And she's I'm, here for creating a world in which black women are sacred. And in doing so, she declares that all people are sacred. Because if she can make the least sacred in society sacred, then all are sacred. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Right? It's just the same as, you know, like whenever we talk about like, you know, um, inclusion and equity what's good for the most marginalized is actually good for everyone so like you know in the united states with the american disabilities act you start to see where there are sidewalks you see ramps like just paved the paved ramps for people who are in wheelchairs to be able to access sidewalks right that's actually good for everyone it's good for parents who have kids in a stroller yeah it's good for clumsy people right it's good for everybody like yeah and so creating spaces that are inclusive and equitable serve the entire community. And that's, that's what she's here for. That is what she's here for. Mm-hmm. That's what justice looks like. That's what equity looks like. That's what equity looks like. Mm-hmm. That's what, yeah, that's what it's what love so looks much like. Yeah. That's what love looks like. Thank you for, for that, for actually bringing it into EDI and equity and inclusion, which in the light, in the in the wake of um, the murder of Mr. Floyd, you know, has been something that all organizations, oh my God, we need an EDI person, we need to do, 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 do. great, and that I'm getting paid, <laughs> yes, and also having to be careful about what I say yes to in the spaces in which I put myself, but definitely trying to convince people that when you center the people who are the most oppressed, the most ostracized, you don't lose, you actually gain. So wondering then, linking it to your own liberation journey, your own journey through um, violence, oppression, internal and subjugation that you and Natasha spoke about at the beginning. Thank you for sharing so generously. How then like, do we, do we practically 
support people who are who are in a position, whether they are white or melanated, of recognizing, damn, I'm on a plantation, like I'm in a prison. It's a pretty prison. It's a lovely prison in English prisons, in English churches. It's comfort. They're kind. They're lovely. That's the most often challenge I have in my work is when I do work with faith groups and work in the charity sector in which I work, which is so white middle class and nice. Niceness is, is the toxicity. Niceness is the problem, because as you just said, well, actually, the sacred black feminine is inconvenient. Mm-hmm. She's disruptive. Mm-hmm. She's disrupting comfort and niceness. So how then do we encourage and support black people, white people, whomever, to actually say, okay, recognize the fear, the fear of the scarcity mindset, which says, well, if I say no to that contract, if I say no to that consultancy opportunity, will I be able to pay my mortgage next month? Mm -hmm. If I say no to that, will these relationships end? Yeah, you you dashed, you, um, what did you call it, called fired? (laughs) Yeah, 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 you fired friendships. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. that again, like represents a beautiful faith in abundance which many still don't have so yeah how do we support listeners whomever ourselves to be like journeying out of the plantation which is an ongoing journey it's something good to do yeah I mean I think there's a reason why very few people escape plantations it's really hard I think it's really hard to recognize that you're on a plantation because it's all you know and if you're like me I mean, I was raised in a black family in the United States, but my parents didn't teach us to get off the plantation. They taught us to be the most powerful Negro on the plantation. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, just amass as much power as you can contort yourself, do what the, do what the master wants, because that's, that's, that's literally your only pathway. That's the Mm. only way to save yourself. And so you know, I thought a lot about, you know, Harriet Tubman. I've had to, I've been invited into really thinking of her as a significant ancestor for me because I don't, I grew up in such a conservative black Christian family that I don't really have physical ancestors that I can look to in this way. But I think, gosh, what stimulate, what, 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 what caused her to wake up one day and be like, I'm too sacred for this. This is everything I've ever known. I literally don't know what life off the plantation is like. I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to survive. I don't know how I'm going to eat. I don't know what language they speak. I don't know what transferable skills I have. I don't know if anybody will help me. I don't know the terrain. I don't know the weather. I don't, but I'm too sacred for this. Uh. How, what happened? You know, what stimulated that? And then also, because, you know, I'm sure for part of her life, she was just going through, this is what I do. And then all of a sudden she was like, wait a second, this ain't right. Mm -hmm. And then I also thought a lot about the transition, that time between where she woke up and said, I'm too sacred for this. And when she actually left. Yeah. Because it wasn't instantaneous right so there's a whole incubation period where we might recognize on some level this ain't right and I had moments like that when I was a kid now as I look back I'm like man little Christina be knowing you can see it in my facial features (laughs) on photographs where I'm just like you know exactly you know what I mean I'm just like you know what I don't know about these people you can see it in my body language that I'm not comfortable you know so there were little snippets of I'm too sacred for this, I'm, but it was still a long process for me of connecting. I needed to get to a point where abundance, the cheer of abundance was louder than the clang of fear. Yeah. 
everything in white male God is all about fear, scarcity. You have to do this because this is the best you can do. You know, literally when I first got to my job at Duke Divinity School, it was a hot mess the first week I got there. I had been lied to. There were all these issues around my salary. There were some problematic people on my, um, on my team that I had inherited, right? So there were all these issues. So I'm, in the, I'm in the dean's office being like, we got this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, trying to address them. The dean looked at me and said, well, what are you going to do about it? You're here now which is exactly what the slave master would say. You don't have any power. You don't have any control. What are you going to do about it? Like you, you're here now. You can't just leave. And I was like, yes, I can just leave. And it's funny because I did end up leaving. And it, um, it, later on, one of my friends who's a um, professor at another divinity school is like, the word on the street is that if you're a racist institution, Christina Cleveland will quit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've done it. So Some of us have got that record as well. Right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but, but how do you get to that point? Because the fear is so loud and the, the slave owner is, con- whether that's the church, whether that's theology, whether that's a boss, whether that's your dean, Ideology. the slave owner is going to be breathing down your neck with the fear. This is the best you can do. You need to just be thankful. And so one of the things that I've t- thought about and that I write about in the book is the Hush Harbor. Mm. The Hush Harbor is an interesting place on the on the colonial American plantation. It's where Black women would lead groups of people in spiritual practices that were really harvesting the most life-giving parts of Christianity and mixing it with the Yoruba or the ancestral African practices and creating these spaces of joy and liberation and connecting with our true identity. And, you know, I wonder if the Hush Harbor is a radicalizing space. I wonder if every night you go out to the Hush Harbor and you come back a little more radical. Yeah. A little more like, oh, oh I'm, yes. I'm too sacred for this, right? A like, little more rowdy. A little bit more like, I'm not having this. I know tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. I got to get up and go pick cotton, but I'm salty about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was just in the Hush Harbor last night where I encountered a spirituality that actually cares for my needs. And so I think part of the process for me is how can I create these hush harbor spaces in my life to usher me off the next plantations that I need to get off of? Because there's, there's bajillions of plantations, right? What does it look like to culture, to, to sort of curate a life that focuses on connecting to abundance? Mm. What does that look like? Abundant theologies for years before I was able to get off my first plantation, I, every night before I went to bed, I read an hour of Palestinian liberation theology. It was like wow. my lullaby. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was a hush harbor space for me. That was a place yeah. for me to connect to abundant theology. Mm, yeah. Oh, wow. Samson is the first suicide bomber? Mm-hmm. That reframes everything for me. Mm-hmm. And that humanizes suicide bombing for me. And actually, I can, I can have... I can allow my personal experience to influence how I read scripture. Mm-hmm. And so just starting, Thank so God. abundant theologies, right? Abundant practices. What is taking people, taking our friends out in nature and being connected to trees. And I mean, just this morning I was doing, a, I do a, a prayer time, like a meditation prayer time with a, with a friend. And this, just this morning we were connecting with the earth and the inherent abundance of the earth this earth is always holding us yeah always always this breath is always resourcing us how do we connect with that because it's those little things that help us connect to help us realize that not only are we too sacred for this but 
there's so much abundance out there that if I make a decision that's for my wellness, somehow the universe is going to support that. Mm, because somehow. I believe that God is a black woman. So if God is a black woman, she doesn't want my sacred black feminine self on a plantation. No, she doesn't. Not for the health insurance, not for the, not for the reliable salary, mm-hmm. not for the connections, not for nothing. If I am being devalued and denigrated in that space, God as a black woman wants me to get out and she's going to support that. And some of the journey is getting you to a point that you realize that, that you're prepared. So it's the graciousness that, you know, I know that you're still choosing to be there because the balance in your head is still more, there's more fear shouting than the liberation shouting at this point. So there's no kind of point that there's a kind of, why aren't you, you know, that getting at you because you're not ready to step, but there's always that encouragement that, you know, I love you more than this. Mm-hmm. that this love is yeah I mean we have to we have to connect with that though because the fear is always coming at us you know mm-hmm. and it's like and there's a reason why Harriet Tubman told people I'll shoot you if you go back to the plantation because there's all these reasons to go back mm-hmm. white male God is always putting carrots out to try mm-hmm. to get you back into his fold once you decide I'm too sacred for this and so you know even right now where it's like you know, this book launch hasn't gone exactly like I had hoped. There have been some great highs, but there have also been some huge disappointments. And yeah. I, even just these days, I have to spend a lot of time being like, she's got me. She's, uh, got, she's, got, me, she's got me this far. She's going to continue to get me where I need to go. And it's not easy. It's a, yeah. it's a practice, right? And that's why I'm like, this, the, it's the, the sacred Black feminine is a practice. Uh-huh. <laughs> I want to ask, I, I, this, this may or may not, but I want to ask about, you know, Jael in the Bible, she's the one that, Cecilia comes along and she's got that nail. That's, she's my middle name person. But uh-huh. when, you, when, you, when you talk, this is a TED talk, this is a, um, this is a podcast that has, you know, particularly been influenced at how much evangelicalism has walked into violence, particularly in America. But, we, but in understanding that kind of patriotic, kind of narrative that has manifested itself and made a them and us in such violent kind of ways. When you're talking about Palestinian liberation theology, when you're taking a perspective on Samson that says suicide bomber, there's going to be people that will be like, boom, mm-hmm. because that is a violent narrative and that's not who Jesus is. You know, is that where Jesus is going? Is that where the sacred feminine is going? There's a part of me that's like, you have to, when your children are being lynched, they're, they're being arrested in particular situations. What is the response? And white male God has gotten away with for a long time talking about, turn the other cheek oh. and you have to forgive me. Yeah. And you, you know, and there's, there's serious abuse that has gone on. Totally, yeah. Serious abuse. What does the sacred black feminine have to say to that? I think think the sacred black feminine was speaking through Martin Luther King, who was more committed to nonviolent principles than just about anybody in the history of the world. And he himself said, the riot is the language of the unheard. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was the sacred black feminine speaking through him. And that's the sacred black feminine speaking through Naima Teek, who wrote this analysis of liberation theology about Samson as the first suicide bomber. Naima Teek is saying, 
he's humanizing suicide bombers by saying the problem is not their reaction to violence. The problem is the violence, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And I think what I love about that is that it's so, it's so disruptive to white patriarchy. Cause remember when I first got connected to the sacred black feminine, I had shame that I was even oppressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I I was born in a prison, but I'm ashamed that I'm blaming yourself that I'm in a prison. And I think being able to see suicide bombers as Samson helps us realize the problem is the prison, the violent prison, Mm -hmm. not how we have. And, you know, it's so funny because I think, um, you know, getting free, getting off the plantation is going to be violent Mm because the system is violent. Well, because the system doesn't want you to leave. I mean, we have to use the language of plantation about it purely because the plantation owner is not letting you just walk. Totally. I I think I want to just to jump in there, just to clarify also, like we can have one image of the plantation as in like thinking back again to the epic um, 12 Years a Slave. And yeah, you've got like the the horrible, you you know, the the whip, you know, the awful plantation owner. And remember, you also have the nice one. You have the quote unquote benevolent one, family. the weak one, We're family. the one, right? The Benedict Cumberbatch who plays so well. And it's like, yeah, you're still on a plantation, even if it's a nice place, a soft place, a comforting place, a place that you're welcomed and you're not actively mistreated. You are being mistreated in the theology that you're absorbing, in the culture that's being distorted within you, with the ideology that you're soaking. It's a it's a subtle violence, but it's still there. It's it's a different kind of abuse, but you're still proprietary. You're still a property that is owned by someone. The fact that I treat the property nice doesn't change the fact that it's a thing. Yeah. So I just wanted to like say that because I can just imagine that some people's response to this will be, oh, well, we're not at a plantation because my church is nice. I'm not on a plantation because yeah. my workspace is nice. And it's like, yeah, lovely that you've got a lovely soft prison. It's still a prison. It's still a prison. It's still a cage. And I say that as someone who works in majority white spaces, is worshipped in white church. And that that long journey of being like, okay, the bars are wider, the bars are wider, the bars are wider, but there are still bars there, baby. You need to... I just wanted to add to that, though. That was really helpful, um, what you said, Natalia, there, because it's also possible to be on a plantation that's fully led by people that have as much or more melanated than you are, because this is about ideology. It's not as if, you you know, it would have to be someone that's working it through, black or white or whatever ethnicity, however you show up in the world, but you'd have to be working it through because I certainly have worked for people who operate from white supremacy who have darker skin than I do. And and that is part of the trauma and the prison that they're in. But, you know, as that love your neighbor as yourself, if you're already in that prison and that's the violence that you're prepared to take on for yourself, you're only going to project that out on everyone else who looks like you in that state. So in terms of This is not an issue that is limited just, as you said, it centers black women, but it's not necessarily saying that nobody else can can join that that party. You can come to the ball. Come to the ball, babe. I'm correct. (laughs) Ladies, we've drawn ourselves to an end. It's been a great time to have this conversation with you. I just want to thank you so much, Christina Cleveland. You are just such a gift to people and the encouragement that you've given you know the work that you did share over that period of time was water in the middle of a desert at 
times. So I know that the Sacred Black Feminine will be blessing you and holding you wherever you go. And I also want to thank you, Natalia Nana, for just bringing your, your expertise and love and passion too. And I want to thank everybody who is listening to this. Um, some of this stuff may have been quite challenging, may take you from to different places. Beloved, that's a good thing. Jump in. <laughs> so until next time, friends, we'll catch up again. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchin for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.